You can go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 11. going to read verses 1 through 15, so we have the context in which we're spending our time in verses 7 to 15 this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to reach, to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the one coming, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to him, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Our text for this morning, beginning in verse 7 there. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothings are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, This morning, we're continuing uh, in the text, and uh, we're going to look at the greatest prophet. Now, I don't know what greatness conjures up in your mind, whether it's a famous athlete or an entertainer or whoever, um, but when God says somebody's great, that should mean something, right? Right? And so when it comes to greatness, God obviously defines what greatness is. And it's very different from what the world says greatness is. And so we're going to meet a man today who comes from humble family, from no wealth, from no worldly really education, not even really any success per se, uh, no particular physical beauty, no earthly possessions or position And yet the Lord says he's the greatest human being who ever lived. That's pretty amazing. Look at verse 11 with me, if you will, in our text. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. That's an amazing statement. It truly is. And that's, this is just somebody's opinion. You know, you remember Muhammad Ali. I mean, his opinion of himself was what? I'm the greatest. Okay. I mean, he went all over the world saying that. Um, but this comes from God and he's talking about someone else. It comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord is speaking this notice there. It says verily or assuredly. In other words, I'm about to tell you something that's very, very factual. You can take it to the bank. You can count on this. It's beyond any disputed fact. And then he says among them that are born of women. Basically, that's a reference 
It's a Jewish reference and kind of an ancient reference to the human race. That's how they would say, hey, this guy's a human being. This, John the Baptist wasn't super, supernatural in any way. He was just like you and I. Um, and yet he was called by God to do something incredible. And it designates someone's identification as part of the human race. And we find it goes back as far as really um, even uh, back to uh, uh, Job. In chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. In chapter 15 of Job, verse 14, it says, What is man that he should be clean? And he who is born of a woman, same phrase, that he should be righteous. So it became a designation of humanness. He is the greatest human being who ever lived. Now, that doesn't mean that he was supernatural. It doesn't even talk about his spirituality. He's just saying on a strictly human basis, human perspective, this guy was incredible. There's not one risen who's greater than John the Baptist. That word risen is used when, it, when the Bible speaks of the appearance of a prophet. Whenever it talks about an apophet, a prophet, uh, appearing on the scene, it always uses that, that phrase, risen. Many false prophets shall what? Rise, it says, right? Uh, there, shall not, uh, there shall rise false prophets and, and, and false Christs. So it has the idea of someone coming on the scene, and it's used frequently to refer to a, a prophet. But this guy was very, very unique. And the Bible says that there was never a prophet with more talent and a more significant role to play than John the Baptist. He must have had a powerful personality. He must have had an incredible voice because he spoke to thousands and thousands of people. And people came from all over to hear his message. Um, he's unparalleled. I mean, he's greater than Adam. He's greater than Abel. He's greater than Enoch and Melchizedek. He's even greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Go right down the line. Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, Elijah. Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. He was the greatest human being that ever lived based on his human abilities. That's what that means. And he had a unique calling. So he was, he was an incredible prophet, the greatest prophet. Now, it's interesting here at the end of verse 11, and we're just going to kind of cover this up front, and then we'll work our way through the text. It says at the end of verse 11, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Incredible. What's he saying? He's saying, basically, I want, I want you to understand, this guy was an incredible human being as far as humanity goes. As far as playing a role in human history, there's never been anybody like John the Baptist. But it went, when it comes to the spiritual dimension, the least person on the, in the spiritual world is greater than the greatest person in the human dimension. See, the world judges things differently, doesn't it? You may look at Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or any of these guys who have billions and billions and billions of dollars and very successful people, very ingenious people, incredible talents. Wow, that's a great man. Well, the Bible says that's not necessarily greatness the way God sees it. And there's basically some interesting things about John the Baptist that I want you to see here this morning. First of all, in Matthew chapter 3, it tells us a little bit about, and we went over this, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here, tells us a little bit about his appearance. 
Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honeys. I mean, this guy's appearance was one of a grizzly bear. <laughs> you know, uh, first of all, we know that he took a Nazarite vow. And he was one of the few in the Bible that took a Nazarite vow for life. I mean, others took the Nazarite vow for a couple months or a year or something, but he took it for life. And what it meant was there's a couple things. It was showing your commitment to God. One thing to mark them out, those who took the Nazarite vow from anybody else, is they were not allowed to cut their hair or shave in any way. Nothing. They weren't allowed to drink the drink of strong drink, it says, or wine even. They weren't allowed to drink that because that was viewed as kind of a special drink that they drank in the palaces and things like that. And they wanted to set themselves apart from that. But this guy's appearance must have been something. Usually you take the Nazarite vow, I think it's the age 13 in the... In the uh, Jewish faith, you would you would take that you would take that's when a, in the Jewish faith that's when a man be, or a boy becomes a man. So the Nazarite vow would have been taken around the age of thirteen. Well, here he is; he's basically thirty years old when he begins his ministry here as a predecessor to the Lord Jesus Christ, going around telling people that the Messiah is coming. And you think seventeen years? Anybody here have never cut their hair for seventeen years? I mean, can you imagine what that would look like? I mean, some of us don't have to worry about that. But, you know, we got hair growing in our nose and our ears and everything else. So, I mean, you got to be careful about that. But 17 years, you know how they cut your hair. So he must have been a sight to see. And we look at his apparel. I mean, what he wore, the Bible says, he was clothed in a camel skin. I never had a chance to ride a, uh, I say a donkey, but a camel. But my wife has when we went over to Israel. Remember, you rode that, and and we were able to kind of go up and touch the camel. And their their skin and their hair is like a, it's like one of those old scrub brushes you used to use to clean the white wall tires on your dad's car. I mean, that's what it's like. It's very rough. It's coarse. And his apparel was made up of that in this big strapping leather belt, which just probably was just real rough and ragged. It wasn't some soft, supple thing. And so he threw this camel hair coat over him, basically, and drew it up with this belt, and he had hair coming out everywhere. I mean, you can only imagine what this guy looked like. And then you look at what he ate, locusts and honey. And, you know, I take it just to mean that. It means locusts and honey. And back then in that culture, they would take locusts and they would like fry them up in a fire and dip them in honey and eat them. That's what they would do. And he lived out in the wilderness. So he had to survive. Have you ever seen the show Man vs. Wild? It's kind of a cool show. You know, I'm always thinking, well, if I'm ever lost, I'm going to try to listen to this show and see if I can glean some things. But man, that guy eats some things. I, don't, I think I'd rather die than eat some of the things he eats. And he just eats it like it's nothing, you know. Um, well, well, John the Baptist was that kind of guy. He was just kind of a, a ruffian. He was just, he wasn't, you know, he didn't dance to anybody's tune. He was his own man. And he got his message directly from God. And it made him great. And people would come from all over to hear him speak. 
Well, what made John the Baptist so great? There's three areas here that Christ points out to us. First of all, in verses 7 to 8, it says that speaks of his personal character, his personal character, who he was as a person. He was great among men, among those who were born of woman, because of his personal character. Well, what made his personal character so special? First of all, he overcame his weakness. And we have to jump back to verses 2 and 3 in the messages that we've preached before on derailing doubt. Remember, John the Baptist was in prison. I mean, this is a guy that's used to living out, you know, in the wilderness, in the desert, just free as a bird. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in this pit of a prison by himself. Obviously, his disciples were able to come and at least give him messages, and he could give them messages. But that was about, the, about it. And the reason he was in there is because he was bold with his testimony for Christ. He saw, saw what was going on in, in Herod's family, and he, he basically took someone else's his, his wife and, and all this stuff was going on and it wasn't right before God. And he just went and told him face to face. And you don't do that to someone who is in the position of Herod over you. And when he did that, the guy got ticked off and said, you know what, I'm just going to lock this guy up. And so he threw him in prison. And that's where John has been sitting for about a year and a half in prison. This is a guy that's been faithful to the call of God on his life. He's done everything that God has asked him to do the way God has asked him to do. He's spoken the true message of the gospel to those who God told him to speak it. And now he's in prison? That doesn't seem right. I mean, there's two kinds of people in life, beloved. There's those who are victims and there's those who are victors. There are the people who can rise above their circumstances and there's the people who cannot. They can't rise above their difficulties. They can't rise above their weaknesses. And then there are people who can't. And it really means whether you're going to succeed or whether you're going to fail. Because everybody has weaknesses, right? We all have weaknesses. Everybody has failings. Everybody has some kind of infirmity, something going on. Since Friday night, I've been kind of just my stomach's been doing loops and just, you know, I mean, I, I never Friday night about midnight. I was sitting there and my head was just perspiring so, so much. I, I'd never sweat that much in my life. And I don't know, it's something I ate or something. I don't know. Feel fine. It's not a flu bug or anything, but it's just something I put in my system that it didn't like. And it was trying to get rid of it. It's just problem is it's taking a couple days to do it. <laughs> See, but the question is. Whether or not you can overcome, overcome these weaknesses, these difficulties. See, that's the mark of greatness. The great ones fight through it. The great ones are competitive. They can compete against their own ignorance. They can compete against their own laziness, their own indifference. They can compete against their own weaknesses. And they will overcome them. See, that's the difference. John had that ability. I just got a, a message from my sister-in-law our brother Tom has cancer, you know, in his spine and I think in his lung or somewhere. And it's been kind of a difficult time for him. But, you know, he's a farmer. And if you know anything about farmers back east, I mean, they just continue to do what they do. And he's gone through chemo and radiation, all sorts of things for the last, I think, two and a half years or whatever. And, um, you know, they're slowly kind of taking care of this tumor. But um, he just keeps working. And those of you who've been through chemo, you know what it does to your body. He'll be out there on the, on the tractor plowing the thing, you know, half dead to the world. Uh, I told my nephew Luke that, you know, I mean, the, 
when I was back there visiting, we were in Luke's house, and we can see my brother's kind of farm down there. And, and uh, when I left his house, he was, he, my brother was telling me I was going over to his son's house. He said, uh, yeah, he goes, I'm probably going to go take a nap. I'm really worn out. So I'm over at Luke's house, and I look down, and we're talking about his dad. And, uh, and there he is down there on the tractor. <laughs> You know, I said, one day you're just going to look down at certain that tractor's going to be going in circles and, and your dad's just going to be going with the Lord. You know, that's the way he's going to go. He's always worked two, three, four jobs. I mean, it's just amazing. Businesses coming out of here. But this last week, my sister-in-law called and said, hey, we got some good news. You know, the tumor has basically not gone away, but it hasn't grown. And they're going to kind of cut him off some of this stuff. And, uh, and he just continues to do what he's doing. See, some people have that that within them, just to fight through it. Other people just lay down and die. Verse 2 tells us that he was in prison. That was a difficult time. It was so difficult, he even began to doubt that Christ was the Messiah because he sent his disciples, as we found out last week, to see, hey, are you the Christ or should we look for another? Did I get the right guy in this line of men that's supposed to parade before the Messiah or maybe I missed, maybe I'm off by one or two because what we're seeing you do, Jesus, doesn't line up with what... The Bible says, the Bible says, you know, that a lot of things, judgment is going to come and all this stuff. Well, John didn't understand that's going to be later. So he was expecting Christ's mission of mercy to really be a, a, a mission of judgment. And so he had some kind of mixed up understanding of, of who the Messiah was. And, but he was willing to overcome those hardships. But he was at a low point in his life. He was at a weak place. And we saw how immediately, where did he go? Did he just sit there in the cell and whine and whimper and, oh, God doesn't love me? No. He went right to the Lord. He couldn't go physically, so he grabs up two of his disciples and says, hey, you know what? You need to go ask the Lord what's going on. And that's exactly what happened. And we saw last week that, obviously, the answer that Jesus told him, that look at what I'm doing and you can see that I am who I said I am, I am the Messiah. That must have sat well with John because when he died, his disciples went immediately to Jesus. And the reason they went immediately to Jesus because Jesus must have been a big part of John the Baptist's life. Even though he had doubts at one time, Jesus helped him work through those doubts. And so it's, it's important that we understand that his personal character, he was able to overcome weakness. And that's what God wants us to do. We all have weaknesses. We all have a myriad of weaknesses. I mean, we could, you know, sit down and write books on our weaknesses. And God says, you know what? I've given you the power through the Holy Spirit to overcome them. But the first thing we have to do is admit that we have a weakness. First thing we have to do is go before God and admit it. If we're not willing to do that, then he can't really help us. See, he wasn't... John the Baptist wasn't playing the God game to make everybody think that he was infallible. You know, there are some spiritual leaders that make themselves out to be almost God themselves. You know, that's just, you know, some people kind of, sometimes I'm pretty transparent about things and some people, you know, come to me and say, you know, I don't know if you should be that transparent. And I'm like, well, you know what? I don't know how else to be. I mean, I'm the kind of person, if, if my wife and I are in a fight, somebody's going to know about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just the way it is. 
You know, I don't play those games. I don't try to hide behind a pulpit or whatever to think that, oh, I'm somebody that, you know, uh, doesn't have any issues. I mean, I have major issues in my life, as we all do. But we have to go to the right source to deal with those issues, and that's what God tells us to do, and that's what John the Baptist did. But if you're not not willing to admit that you have issues, then you're not going to get the help you need. Um, And so we need to be a transparent group of people. We need to support each other. We need to, um, you know, be willing to share when we're going through a hard time. And God will bless that. It's one of the, the truest tests of greatness is humility, is the willingness to drop down the, the guard and drop the, the you know, the, the little face you have plastered on your face and be willing to say, you know what, I'm going through a hard time now. You know, I don't feel like praising the Lord. I don't feel like singing these songs. I don't even feel like being here. You need to reach out. You need to mainly reach out to God and tell him what's on your heart because he sees it anyway. You're not fooling him. And that's where humility comes in. Don't try to put up a, you know, a straw man that everybody sees, that, but that's not the real deal. Because sooner or later, we see that. So he was a man of greatness due to his own personal character and the way that he overcame his weakness. I mean, he was so humble. I mean, even when in John 3.30, he said, I must decrease Pointing to Christ, he must increase. I mean, think about it. He had multitudes of following, following him, John the Baptist did. And he gave all that up, and now he's sitting in prison? The great are the ones who see their weaknesses and work to overcome them. They're not the ones who fancy themselves to be without weakness. As long as you're able to admit your your weaknesses, you will have the ability to grow in your strength. John Wesley, in one of his commentaries, points out that neither the Romans nor the Greeks had even a word in their vocabulary for humility. They definitely didn't know what humility was because man does not want to admit his weakness and, and, and so true greatness eludes most men, most women. One great general, general once said, give me a son who knows humility because that is the path to true greatness. So we have to make sure that we're willing to overcome our weaknesses. Secondly, his character showed us that it says there in verse uh, 7 that he was strong in conviction. And here Jesus begins to ask the crowd, okay, his disciples left, and, and basically he's there, and then the disciples of John the Baptist come, and he tells them what, what uh, to go tell John. They left, and now this, there's a crowd of people there. And so Jesus begins to ask the crowd of people three questions. And the first question kind of reveals John the Baptist's strong conviction. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes of the crowd concerning John, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? See, people would flock from all over the place to hear this guy speak. It was amazing. And he lived out in the wilderness. He lived out in the desert. So that's where they would go. And he asked the question, what did you go out there to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What does that mean? 
over in the land of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, the shores are just full of these kind of, it looks like kind of, what's it called, pompous grass or whatever that stuff that people have over here. It's kind of like that, but they're, they're, they're pieces of grass and it's hollow. You could actually make a straw out of it if you wanted to. And they just, you know, they just go with the wind. Whatever way the wind blowing, that's the way they go. They just blow back and forth. So Jesus uses a very common illustration here. He said, did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? In other words, he's talking about John's conviction, deep, heartfelt conviction. And the crowd is probably sitting there thinking, wait a minute. You know, his disciples just came and said that he was wondering even if this guy was the Messiah. They probably heard the whole conversation. And so they're thinking, if John the Baptist is having doubts, what's going on here? So Jesus addresses that. And he says, why would you go out to hear this guy? If he's just some, you know, flimsy, you know, stand for nothing kind of guy. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't travel all those miles out in the middle of the wilderness or the desert to hear some guy speak that didn't make any sense. That didn't have any convictions. And the crowd was saying, well, he had doubts. And Jesus was addressing that. So he asked this very, very simple question. They were wondering, can we believe John the Baptist? He's, is he this vacillating guy that goes back and forth? And Jesus was saying, hey, you know what? Did you go see him because he was some reed shaken in the wind? Does he not stand on a conviction? Is he just this weak person with no ability to make up his mind? See, when you can't make up your mind in a certain situation, people look at that as being wavering. People look at that and, and they, they, it just doesn't show greatness at all. It shows just the opposite. It shows weakness. Remember when Favre was trying to make a decision whether to play or not to play? Remember he's going back and forth? Everybody's making fun of him. I mean, this is a great guy, a great quarterback, a tremendous athlete. And I'm sure he had to hear earfuls of stuff because he's back and forth. I mean, they even have a commercial about it. I mean, it's crazy. He doesn't want them to think that John is some vacillating kind of weak person with no ability to make up his mind. So he says, you don't make a long, hard journey out in the middle of nowhere to see some <laughs> reed just blowing in the wind. See, if they wanted weak, need, ordinary reeds that blew around with every wind, all they had to do is look around them in their own religious system, right? They had the Pharisees, they had the scribes, they had the Sadducees, they had all these people who could never make a decision about anything. They are the ones that should have called Herod on his inappropriate behavior, but they didn't do it because they were playing a game with the government. They were just, and they wanted to fit in. They were just blowing with whichever way the wind blew, that's the way they would go. And Jesus is pointing out that John the Baptist was not that way at all. You just didn't go out to see this ordinary garden variety kind of guy who's blown around like everybody else with no strength, no conviction. And that's what we need today in believers. We need people who will stand upon their convictions. I mean, if we say we believe the Bible, then we need to live by the Bible. It's almost, in a way, 
When he says this weed or this reed driven, it's almost somebody who's just spineless. Somebody who just can't, you know, make any decision. They're afraid of offending anybody. And just, you know, the whole land was filled with people like that. You've read the great book Pilgrim's Progress. It would be Mr. Pliable. Remember, he doesn't want to go to prison because he doesn't want to be martyred for the truth. See, John was not common. He was not compromising in any way. He didn't hold back from the message. I mean, even in Matthew 3, when all the leaders came out, it says, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that's all the the leaders of both parties there, they're basically there, and he doesn't go up to them and say, hey guys, what's happening? You want to have a barbecue? (laughs) He doesn't say that at all. He says, you generation of snakes. Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruits of repentance. Don't say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you, God is able for these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. I mean, that's pretty in-your-face strong stuff to people in very high positions. And then basically he goes on and talks about questionable fire and judgment and all sorts of things. He confronted Herod with his sin. That's why he was in jail. And eventually his plate, his, his head ended up on a plate. Chopped his head off. That's conviction. That's standing up for what you believe. William Penn, great patriot said this right is right even if everyone is against it and wrong is wrong even if everyone is for it we need to hear that today in our society right i mean this idea that well you know it doesn't hurt anybody well it hurts god if you're breaking one of his principles one of his commandments it grieves his heart john the baptist was a man of great conviction he knew what was right and he'd do it Interesting story when Chrysostom was arrested by the emperor. He wanted to make this Greek Christian deny his faith. He wanted to make him recant that he was a Christian. But he was unsuccessful. So the emperor discussed with his advisors, what do we do with this guy? What are we going to do with him? Can I put him in a dungeon? I'll put him in a dungeon. And one of the counselors said, don't do that. He'll be glad you do it. Because he longs for the quietness of that place where he can delight in the mercies of his God. Well, what are we going to do? Let's execute him, said the emperor. No, one of the other counselors said, he'll be glad to die. Because he declares in the event of death, you know what? He's going to be in the presence of the Lord. What shall we do? The ruler asked, and he was frustrated. And the counselor said, there's only one thing, one thing that will cause him pain. Make him sin. If we make him sin, that's it. He's afraid of nothing but sin. I mean, what a testimony, huh? See, that's much like John. Scripture can firms the value of a person with conviction. In James it says, don't be double-minded. 
person. Don't go back and forth. Go on whatever way is easy. Don't do that. Ephesians 4.14 says, Don't be blown about by every wind of doctrine. See, today, doctrine is a bad word. A lot of churches, they don't teach doctrine because if they taught doctrine, well, that would be maybe perceived as being divisive. And you don't want to be divisive within the body of Christ. So you have churches that don't teach any doctrine at all. They just teach a bunch of happy, you know, five little things to make your family or your marriage happy or how to put more money in your pocket, whatever it is. It doesn't offend anybody. I mean, do you know that today there's churches that will not sing a hymn if blood or sin is mentioned in it? I mean, isn't that crazy? It's just off the wall. People of no conviction. I was at a chaplain's meeting the other day, and, and you know, and chaplains, they come from all different backgrounds, sizes, colors, face, everything. And we were there, and one of the, the individuals in this, in this group, you know, she came in with the flowing robe and just, you know, Rolled across the room, and I just thought, oh, it just grieves my heart. It just, you know, and Lord, just guard my mouth, just keep my mouth shut, don't say anything that would offend this lady, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, but she was some from Unitarian, something greater power, whatever. I mean, hey, great, she's part of the chaplaincy, but I'm thinking, okay, what does she tell these people in their time of need? What could she possibly tell them? I mean, it's just amazing. Some people have no convictions whatsoever. Or there's people that have convictions, but they don't share them with anybody because they don't want to offend anybody. He was strong in conviction. Thirdly, he denied himself. Look at verse 8. But what did you go out to see? He asked a second question. First one was about a reed, talking about his conviction. The second question, it says, did you go out to see a man clothed in soft garments? Did you go out there and you actually find somebody that's going to be patted down with elegant, luxurious clothing on? He says, indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What does that speak? It speaks of his own self-denial. It speaks that John the Baptist wasn't out there getting, taking up offerings, you know, building up his coffer so he could go build a big house on a hill with nice clothes and servants and everything else. That's not what his game plan was. His life was marked by self-denial. And that's another element of greatness. You look at any great person and somewhere in their life, there's going to be self-denial. They're going to make the hard call. They're going to deny themselves of this so maybe they could have that. So they could be greater. Truly great people are the people who can deny themselves. I mean, that's really what history bears out. You think of, you know, most recently, people like the Kennels who, you know, deny themselves of being here in this country with their grandkids and, you know, fellowshipping with their own family. And in January, they're going to be sent off to Papua New Guinea to start all over again at 60 years of age to learn a new language with a new tribe because they're so convinced that they need to hear the gospel. I mean, I don't know about you, but that motivates me a little bit. They're willing to deny themselves. That's a good thing and a bad thing. Because the one thing I notice is when they're here, they want to take in everything they can. Because <laughs> they know they're going to have to deny themselves. So I know my wife and I definitely put on a few pounds when we were spending time with them. 
Because, I mean, we just ate everything inside. Oh, in and out. Yeah, we've got to go in and out. We've got to go to Krispy Kreme's, no problem. Because they can't get those things there. And, of course, we had to comply. I mean, they were our guests. You know, we couldn't say, well, we don't eat that stuff. We're on a diet. So, you know, we threw that out first day. It was like, yeah. So, and a wonderful time. But, see, John the Baptist and all of us have to understand that we need to be willing to deny ourselves. Do you go out there just to see a typical guy who operates in the palace, who favors the king, who'll do whatever it takes to just get the royal favors so that maybe he could wear the luxurious robe? See, it's, it's speaking of somebody who wants to dress to impress. That's the whole thing. There's nothing wrong with looking nice. There's nothing wrong with even having clothes that match. I mean, if it was left up to me, man, I'd just wear whatever, you know? It's just, I don't know. I just don't think that way. I don't get up in the morning and say, gee, what goes with these tan pants? This purple shirt or the red shirt? Gee, I don't know. Let's hold them up. I don't do that. If it's clean, it's wearable. You know, that's, that's fashion for me. And sometimes when I get up in the dark hours in the morning and head over to the coffee shop and I come back and go for a walk with my wife and she says, tell me you didn't wear that. Please tell me you didn't wear what you have on over there. Like, well, yeah, I did. They know. It's just, you know, I'm not trying to impress anybody. But we see that he was willing to deny himself. I mean, just by taking the Nazarite vow and all that stuff. I mean, obviously, it was clearly uh, one of the things that he was able to do. And that's what we're called to do. And it doesn't matter whatever area you're going to be great in. It could be athletics, whatever you're going to have to beat your body into subjection. It could be in your job or whatever performance. You know what? You're going to have to deny yourself something along the way to make that happen. And John the Baptist was ready for that. I mean, some people just want an easy life. Some people just want to sit back in the armchairs of grace and just let life go by. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to work with every fiber of our being to make sure that we're doing everything we can that more people will hear and be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that boils down to basically just doing what God has called you to do in ministry, no matter what it is. Or maybe even on occasion doing those things that maybe God didn't call you to do because they need to get done. See, that's what God wants. God wants people who's willing to deny themselves, put him first, and say, you know what, let's, let's, let's work toward this goal together. And I think that that's such, such an important point for us because we live in this society that everything, you know, I mean, we plan our vacations, we plan this, we plan that, and plan our retirement, and everything's, you know, planned out to a T when it comes to how we want to relax. But when we sit down and we look at our calendar and we say, okay, where am I ministering for God on these 30 days of this month? Where am I actually pouring myself into somebody else as a disciple? Where am I actually, you know, doing the work of ministry in these 30 days of a calendar that I look at every month? Boy, it puts things in a stark reality. I mean, we plan date nights with our wife. We plan all sorts of different things. But you know what? When it comes to planning out ministry and really being concerned what God wants us to do within the body of Christ for the kingdom of God, we fall way short. We need to look at that. Now, lest you misunderstand what I'm saying, I'm not talking about self-denial just for self-denial's sake. There are certain individuals who think that 
Denying yourself somehow is a spiritual act. It's a way to gain penance, gain favor from God. There's various saints. One saint wore so many chains because he thought that he could get rid of his sin by causing himself pain. He wore so many chains that he had to crawl around on his hands and knees. He was so weighed down. Bessarion, a monk, would not even give in to his body's desire for restful sleep. Listen to this. For 40 years, he wouldn't lie down. He slept in a chair. Macarius, the younger, sat naked in a swamp for six months until mosquito bites made him look like a victim of leprosy. See, these are all people who thought, I'm going to deny myself, I'm going to do this, hopefully God will look at that as favorable. St. Marin spent 11 years in a hollowed-out tree. I don't know why, go figure, but whatever. The most celebrated was Simeon, the, the style light of Syria, and Danielle, the style light of Constantinople. Simeon spent 37 years on different pillars, each one higher and narrower than the last. And his last pillar was 66 feet high, and he died in A.D. 460 at the age of 72. He just kept on sitting on these higher pillars. Go figure. Weird. People do weird things. In, in, in West Mail near Antwerp, there's a covenant of Trappist monks, and they live under the vow of perpetual silence. They dress in rough sackcloth clothing, maybe something like John the Baptist wore. Their heads are shaven. Their beards are unkept. They sleep on hard boards. They eat bread. They drink sour milk with vegetables. Every day, the monk goes to the garden to look into an open grave which awaits the first monk to die. And none of them ever speak. Weird mentality. There was one lady, Agnes, who was the only daughter of one of the wealthiest merchants in Paris. And obviously she was admired by the neighborhood for her wealth and her beauty. Her father died, leaving her the sole possessor of all his wealth. And all of a sudden, all these men came... <laughs> You know, thinking, hey, we want your hand in marriage. And she knew what they wanted. And she determined to become what was then called a recluse. And here's how she did it. To pass the remainder of her days, she put herself in a narrow cell built within the wall of a church. On the 5th of October, when the cell, only a few square feet, was finished, and the wall of the church of St. Opportune, Agnes entered her final abode. The bishop of Paris, attended by his chaplains and the canons of Notre Dame, entered the cell and celebrated a pontifical mass. Then he approached the opening of the cell, sprinkled it with holy water, and after the poor thing had bidden adieu to her friends and relationships, they ordered the masons to fill up the opening. And this was done, done as strongly as stone and mortar could make it, and only a small little opening with which she might hear and looked to hear the offices there located at the church remained. She was 18 years old when she went in. She was 80 years old when she died. She never came out. 
See, sometimes we have it all wrong. We think if we sacrifice in certain areas that God is going to somehow look down and bless us for that. That's not the kind of self-denial we're talking about here. We're talking about the one who denies himself to accomplish a goal that's obtainable. And that is not totally self-consuming. John was that kind of a person. Because of his personal character, he was remarkable. I mean, it was just amazing. Some people even thought that he was the Messiah. In Luke 3.15, it says, As people were in expectation and all men mused in their hearts, all men mused in their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he were the Messiah. That's how great this guy was. So he overcame his weaknesses. He was strong in conviction and his self-denial. Those are all strong attributes of personal character. Secondly, John had a privileged calling, a privileged calling. Another truth about him that made him great. In verses 9 to 11, he asks a third question here. He says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, then more than a prophet. For this is of he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Reference to Malachi there. It's, it's, it's when it comes to tasks on earth, he was the greatest person as far as a human being that we'd ever seen. The only person that really ever even comes close to John in this regard was Mary because Mary was chosen to bear the Messiah. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you look at this man's greatness. How could you be greater than a prophet? I mean, he was far more than just a prophet. A prophet would herald the coming of the Messiah. Right? That's, that's what a prophet would do. It says in Matthew twenty one twenty six that all men perceived that John the Baptist was a prophet. That he was a foreteller. He was a speaker. When it came to his ability to speak, I mean, there was, he was without equal. And you have to understand at this point in time that... You know, when, when he came on, on the scene here, that he was called to ring in the Messiah himself. And greatness not only comes from character, but it comes from one's calling. What has God called you to do? Because God matches all those things up perfectly to fulfill his will for his glory. True greatness always matches the right man with the right position. And the position for John the Baptist was to be the heralder of the Messiah himself. And you say, well, I still don't understand why he was greater than any other prophet. Because John the Baptist was able to... Now, remember, that it had been 400 years since Israel had heard anything from God. Fresh. 400 years. So, basically, there's nobody alive in John's audience who ever heard a prophet speak. They're all dead. And he comes on the scene and he began to basically tell everybody 
The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Prepare the way. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And people were blessed by his ministry in an amazing way. It's really the fulfillment of Malachi 3, 1, there, verse 10. But he was more than a prophet because he said, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And you know what? Here he is. The other guys didn't do that. He actually was able to point to him in person and say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He baptized him. And it's amazing. His calling was specific. His calling was clear. And he lived up to his calling. All, the, all this stuff took place around him. He was kind of like the central figure in history at that time. It was amazing. And God put that calling on his life even before he was born. I mean, this is one thing that's kind of hard to understand, but the Bible says that he was blessed with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. Think about that. Try to put that in your theology and figure it out. That's a weird one. But that's what it says. Incredibly blessed by God for the purpose of God. Verse 12 says that his preaching led to violence. Kind of exciting if you think about it. I mean, can you imagine being such a powerful preacher of the truth of the word of God that, I mean, it actually led to violence? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. We don't have time to go into all what that means, but it's, it's really an incredible study if you have time to do it. His life had become the issue. His ministry had become the focus. And the kingdom of heaven, verse 12, refers to God's rule. Simply referring to, to God's rule, simply referring to God's will, God's message. And he was the central figure within the plan of God at that time. And the violence is both kind of two-sided. People didn't like what he said, so they were violent. You think of the Pharisees, the scribes, who were not only kill him, but they eventually killed Christ. But also, it, it even has the idea of that the act in which he was preaching and, and teaching was kind of violent. It was kind of, it was hard. It was difficult. And that really speaks of our salvation. I mean, so many times we hear this easy go, you know, easy come salvation kind of a thing. And, oh, it's by grace. It's free gift. It's all this stuff. And, and we've gone through passages of Scripture that says, you know what? The, the gate is not broad. It's narrow. It's difficult to get saved is what the Bible says. Because you have to deny yourself, the Word of God says. Christ says, you know what? You can't be my disciple unless you deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's an instrument of death. So unless you're willing to die to yourself every day, don't even think of being one of his disciples. He wanted people to understand that truth. 
The kingdom is moving ahead under the power of marvelous men like John in this aggressive, forceful way. And forceful people are taking that kingdom. See, the entrance of the kingdom requires much endeavor. It requires energy. It requires almost to the point of exertion, exhaustion. Remember the song we sang earlier, I'm desperate for you. See, you can't come to Christ unless you're desperate for him and you're at the end of your rope. You have to come undone within yourself before you can come to Christ. You can't come to Christ saying, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I guess I'll just add Jesus to my life. That's not the kind of salvation we're talking about. And that's clearly not what John preached, and that's what Christ wanted them to understand. He was very privileged in the calling that God called him to, the ministry that he, he, he ministered to. And then at the end there, just the whole culmination of his ministry. And it's interesting, he, he tacks on, because he lived up to everything God wanted him to do. And his head still ended up on a platter. Well, practically, you know, what can you take away from this? That's kind of what verse 15 is talking about. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. You know what? God wants us to overcome our weaknesses. We can only do that when we admit we have weaknesses. God wants us to be strong in conviction. He doesn't want us to walk around, you know, with a, a hand over our mouth saying, well, if I, if I talk about Christ, I might offend somebody. And he wants us to deny ourselves on a daily basis to get the work done that needs to be done. That's it in a nutshell. And that what's, what's characterized in John's life also needs to be characterized in our lives as well. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we pray that you would minister your grace to our hearts. Lord, I pray that as in Matthew 18, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we know that it takes true humility to enter into your kingdom. Father, the Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good. There's none that seeks after you. And Lord, we're so thankful, those of us in this room who know that we're saved because we've trusted in Christ. We thank you for your grace. This isn't something that we did. The Bible is very clear that you set this in motion before even the foundation of the world. And Father, we thank you for that. And I pray that we would live up to our calling on a daily basis and minister to those people, those lost people that you've brought into our lives, that they too would hear the gospel, the life-giving message that Christ forgives sin. Father, we also pray for those who may not know you here this morning. I pray that you would open their hearts to your truth. I pray that as they're exposed to these words, Lord, that they would not be my words, that they would be the words from the pages of your holy book, the Bible. And Lord, that you would convict their hearts, that you would show them their need of a Savior. And Father, we pray that you would do that through the power of your Spirit. We thank you this morning. We praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen.